ignorant in the information age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. It is the American Radicals Podcast, and thanks for joining us today. If you're on Rumble, remember it's rumble.com slash amradpod. While you're there, follow the show. Give us a thumbs up. If you are listening subsequently on the uh, audio format on iTunes and Spotify and iHeart and all those, make sure that you subscribe so that it gets automatically uploaded to you. Give us the, uh, the top review, five stars. It helps us grow. We are growing quite a bit. And, uh, and as we're going into 2024, we're going to stay true to our promise to make sure to give you guys some really great content and some introduce some really great guests. One of those guests that I have with me today is someone who is, has an, a, a career in journalism and the media. He's a best-selling author. Uh, most interestingly to this audience, I would deem him to be a suspendable. And that's someone who's willing to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons damn the torpedoes, damn the consequences. And in this gentleman's case, he put his freedom on the line for that. And we will get into that today. Uh, and then finally, I want to say that he's diagnosed the problem that I think is plaguing the country so much at this point, and that is Americans' addiction to comfort. Uh, he is my spirit animal in that regard, and I am happy and honored to introduce Todd Erzin today to the um, AMRAD podcast audience. Thanks so much for being with me today, Todd. First of all, that introduction is killer. Uh, the, uh, the 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 gra the graphics, the music, the speeches. Uh, I mean, it it sets the, the perfect tone, no matter who you're talking to. And secondly, I, I mean this uh, humbling for uh, a man like you and such as yourself to make a connection like you are with me on uh, any level. I, I, I really, we've had you on the Steve Day Show because we respect so much how you simply refuse uh to wear the chains that they wanted you uh to wear and uh on i am in your debt for um inviting me on and wanting to hear what i had to say because you set the bar as high as anybody possibly could for service to country and understanding what's at stake in these times Oh, thanks, Todd. Uh, and, and it's sort of an interesting dynamic actually getting to talk with you at any sort of length. Uh, it reminds me of that that old saying, if you, God gave you two ears and one mouth because he wants you to listen twice as much as you actually speak. And uh, you being on the other side of the microphone, you really can testify to the, the unique relationship that exists with people who are uh, actually the content creators and then the audience and being somebody who's been in the audience and uh, listening to you on Steve Dace's show for a number of years and the sharing that you guys got to do. You guys are sort of part of my life. I mean, a couple hours every single day, five days a week. Uh, I feel like I've gotten to know you because our relationship is 100% of the time you guys are talking and 100% of the time I'm listening. Um, so I, I feel like we're buddies. I mean, but really at, at best, it's, it's sort of an acquaintanceship at this point because we've had a chance to talk and I'm just dipping a toe into that experience on, on media and, and, and trying to interact as much as I can with the audience, but really getting an appreciation for that. And you have this, this strange dynamic of the relationship. Uh, and so my, my goal today in talking to you is, is to dig into your story a little bit uh, and, and reveal to the audience the experiences that you've had because I, I've, I've always been really impressed by them. Um, but for their for the sake of the audience who might not listen to you regularly on The Blaze, uh, the Steve Day Show, and uh, I can uh, share that here. I'm a proud subscriber to that. 
Uh, and that is a show that is on weekly, uh, weekdays, Monday through Friday at 12 Eastern for a couple of hours. I would encourage everybody to check that out. Uh, Todd is on there with with Steve and with Aaron McIntyre. So that's a fantastic show. It's always well worth the listen. I've uh, I've been subscriber to the Blaze just specifically to get access to this show. So uh, that's the highest praise that I can give you guys. Um, but for the sake of the audience, Todd, can you just kind of give your background where, where you came from and how you actually got into the unique line of work that you uh, currently find yourself in? Well, I uh, was born in Madison, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, the uh, the Berkeley of the Midwest, uh, very liberal, but Madison was a great place to grow up, and my parents are uh, utterly normal. Uh, so I I, you know, I didn't grow up with any particular uh, ideology. Uh, went to the University uh, of Wisconsin. By that time, I had uh, figured out I was generally speaking a a man of the the right, but you know wasn't in college Republicans or. Uh, anything like that. And simply uh, over the course of time, uh, really, I'm, I, I'm fascinated by a lot of the disciplines that li liberals happen to get into, uh, journalism, teaching, uh, th things like that. And post-college, just I realized how little I actually knew based on the formal education I got. So I just became a absolutely uh, voracious uh, reader. And then ultimately I met this Iowa girl who I am now married to and have four children with. And that caused one of us, she lived in Iowa and I lived in Wisconsin. And, uh, uh, one of us had to make a, a decision. Uh, and I, uh, ultimately, uh, moved to Iowa. She, uh, worked at the Des Moines register, uh, already. And, uh, you know, just, just to get something started, I got a foot in the door there with no journalism uh, degree. Uh, my degree was in uh, sociology, and I uh, began a 12-year uh, career there. And even though looking back, you know, thing the wheels, the institutional sclerosis was already planted there. But when I started there, it still kind of looked like your classic newsroom. It wasn't understaffed. It was... It was fully staffed. And uh, yes, the people were largely uh, people of the left, but they felt duty bound by various journalists of ethics to, to not totally be the hacks and the shills outwardly that they are now. And I enjoyed the conversations I had with uh, many of them. Some of them resented it. Some of them liked talking with me, knowing I, had a, I was a uh, conservative. And uh, at the end of... Uh, 12 years, you know, just the, the thing was falling apart. They had layoffs. I made it uh, because I didn't, my career didn't advance as a conservative. And for that reason, my pay scale actually stayed low enough that I didn't get released in many of the waves of letting people go for quite some time. And finally, you know, I, I went out with, I don't know what it was, round four, round five of that, but Providential. Uh, Steve Dace at that time uh, needed somebody. He and I had been friends for a long time. And uh, that's when I started with the Steve Dace show. And I've been there for a decade now. Well, it's it's sort of a weird track. I mean, I, I can kind of empathize with you a little bit with you just never intended to do one thing or another. I mean, I never actually intended to get into law enforcement. I was going to be like CPA accountant. And then 
you know, one thing leads to another and all of a sudden cop to FBI agent and, and, and now doing this. So, uh, it's, it's one of those things that you just never planned for it, but I think you, you, you made the wise decision of happy wife, happy life. I think Iowa is, is a great state. I, I can testify to that outside of being arctically cold, uh, for too much for my preference. Uh, I think it's a great state and, uh, I would have been happy to stay in there, but my wife wanted to move to Florida. So I, I kind of, you blaze the trail and uh, I happen to follow you up on that. Um, when you were at the Des Moines register was you, what was your assignment for there? I mean, did, did was it consistently the same for 12 years or they kind of like no. bounce you around in light of your, your political views? No, it, it was a, a mix of things, uh, really satisfying work. Uh, you know, I did, uh, uh, local uh, government and um, school district uh, reporting for a big chunk of that, and you know, I loved a lot of that. You know, and you, you, they'd be talking about, you know, getting sewers done and controversies about watersheds and things like that. Fascinating public debates when you know you never know when people actually show up. You'll have meetings where nobody's there for week after week after week, and then all of a sudden that looked fairly benign is what people really care about. You know, local local government is, uh, when I talk about people being comfortable, uh, as you know, that's something I complain about all the time. There's people have an obsession with the federal level uh, and, and become addicted to um, the show business aspect of that. And yet these people will sit and complain. And there's certainly things to complain about. And complaints in many cases are right. But that's what they think is politics. You just sit at home and complain about things. And most of these people, even if they are conservative, they've met, never been to the school board meeting. They, they, they have no idea what's going on there. They've never been down to City Hall. That, you're really not. You're just, you're just a consumer. You're not really a citizen. Uh, along conservative lines, you know, you may, you might buy the books, uh, you might some of uh, you know see some speakers, but it's your duty to get off the couch and be part of this thing. You're supposed to actually be leading and helping politicians understand where they're supposed to follow. So uh, I really loved covering uh, local government there, and that's what I was doing to get to uh, uh, the direction ultimately. I know you want to go. In 2008, we had a a a lot of rain, uh, uh, some huge floods around here. And while I was uh, out on the streets covering the floods, uh, I was uh, arrested uh, by the Des Moines uh, Police Department. After that, and when things, uh, we got a new editor, uh, just to button up the initial question, uh, I um, had an editor there kind of gave me a new lease on life. The one when I got arrested was just a terrible, terrible human being. And I was hoping I would be found uh, guilty of the charges against me. The new editor that came in gave me a new chance. And after a while, he actually came to me one day, shocked me. I was like, I thought it was a miracle. I Or, or I had w woken up and uh, hit my head or something. But he said, I want you to write four columns for me. I'm thinking about making you the conservative columnist for this paper. And I did that. But then that's when he got an edict from corporate about the next uh, a round of cutbacks that were also going to mean that the paper was restructured and the timing was just terrible. If if, it, if this had been a year earlier, I think I would have uh, been uh, the columnist. But those columns that I wrote, ultimately, I just forwarded to Steve anyways. And like, Steve and I had been friends, but those were, those were also the thing that Steve uh, 
the, he said, you know what, what are we even doing here? Why don't I just hire Todd and put it and bring him over here? And uh, so God's timing kind of thing. It all, it, it all, it all worked out. What was the Des Moines Register's reputation? I mean, I, people are again, it's, you know, back to the, the big glitz and glamour. Everybody knows the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, maybe to some extent, Chicago Tribune, heavy these days, heavy left. Des Moines is, you know, mid-size American city in the Midwest. And I know Des Moines itself as a city is pretty, pretty blue. Uh, but the state at that point in the early 2000s was kind of purple. Oh, yeah, yeah very purple. Very purple. Yeah. yeah. And I have, so I imagine they, they probably tried to reflect that a little bit. There was some sort of semblance of balance. I mean, it's the old Michael Jordan Republicans buy sneakers too. They got to sell papers. They're having to deal with layoffs. Were they, were they trying to appeal to a conservative readership as well, as well as, or had they kind of gone what we're seeing now where they just have chosen their audience and are, are going to just damn the torpedoes? Yeah, they, they definitely weren't uh, trying to be uh, balanced but there was still enough latent journalistic integrity and that's probably being generous, but looking around them and, and realizing we can't quite just go full propagandist George Orwell yet. So there, there was still a pretense of having to, you know, give the other side its say now, you know, their version of who they picked for the other side uh, was, uh, you know, people like you and I would have an argument with and what they'd allow them to say, which quotes they put in there, how balanced it actually was. But so, so, it, I mean, it's gotten much worse since, since then in the time uh, that I was there. But uh, even then, Barack Obama, when uh, Obama ran against um, Romney, so we're talking 2012, uh, and I, I was still there. The, the then publisher and the then editor, and the editor is the one I just spoke of to you. That he said, you know, he was, he was, he, he signaled a slight renaissance against what I just said about the, you know, the paper was, you know, definitely unapologetically left, not, not interested in anything resembling real balance. Then he came in. He was genuinely willing to. Um, improve the conservative voice there. And largely from, a, you know, I, that was just a guy from the center, but I think he was making a business decision. Like, we're, we're, why are we, the, the Jordan principle uh, you were talking about. Um, he, and when when that election came and it came to be the paper's time to endorse, and I had also spent time with the publisher uh, a woman named Laura Hollingsworth. Again, I think she's generally a woman of the center, but more of a more of a businesswoman than a flat-out journalist. And I actually interviewed her for a story I did about women in the workplace having it all kind of thing when I uh, I did a feature on that. We had a really good conversation. And not because of anything she said politically, but I people came up to me asking me, you know, what, what the endorsement what I thought it was going to be like, how bad it was going to be. And not as any lover of Romney or anything like that. I just said, probably because I knew I wasn't a lover of Romney. I knew what he stood for and he might, he might hit certain centrist journalists who get to make the decisions about this kind of endorsement. I, I actually predicted 
that the Des Moines Register that year was going to break the cycle of the normal liberal endorsements it makes, Democrat endorsements it makes, and endorse Romney. And sure enough, that happened. Uh, but that was it. The, the level of anger that uh, the normal leftist readership of the paper, the letters, uh, that that was the last time anything resembling balance happened. And then the wheels came off really fast after that. It was the uh, apology tour, the, the cancellation tour that we see happening yes. right now through social media, yes. but just at a little bit slower because Twitter wasn't a thing yet. Right. Um, so to, to, to your arrest that you happens in 2008, I'm, I got to Iowa in 2000, late 2014. I guess there had been some floods probably the year before that were pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to Lyon County, which is in the upper northwest corner of the state. And it looked like something out of uh, Katrina. I mean, they had, it was a year later and they'd just been uninhabitable. And th these towns had just been devastated by that yep. flood. And uh, from what I understand, the, the flood you were responding to was far worse than that. Um, and you were just reporting on where the floodwaters were and happened to, I don't know, anger the wrong police officer that day? I had been reporting for several days down there. You know, with um, when it's not a flash flood, the thing about the interesting thing about floods is a natural disaster is you know, the rain's been coming for days and weeks and, and the Corps of Engineers is measuring uh, how high the river is. And so I'm down there on the river with, um, uh, with the um, military's reserves uh, as they put uh, 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 sandbags up along, uh, along the river. I'm interviewing the people that are volunteering their time to, you know, put the sand in those sandbags. I'm walking up and down streets, interviewing residents that have been told to leave. Things, things like that. And and you know, in terms of selling papers during that time, the people really like to read that stuff. So I, it, this was like day four, I think, leading right up to it. And the the day before my arrest, the uh, the water crested, and I was I was there right on the um, river. Uh, when uh, the news came in uh, and I saw the uh, reserve being told that they could bug out, all was done, seemed safe, talked with the uh, uh, now deceased uh, director of public works in Des Moines, a really great guy. He was under a ton of stress, but I said, man, my editor wants to know like exactly how many tons of sand, exactly how many sandbags. If you can remember to get that for me, I'd be grateful. He was a really good dude. I mean, he, he called me back in an hour personally and said, here's what we did. So went to bed that night. Everybody thought we had um, uh, managed uh, to avoid disaster. And then I get a call. Uh, it was like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., if memory serves or something like that. The levee along that river that they were putting the sandbags on top, it burst. And so water came flooding through. Uh, and uh, co covered uh, uh, a neighborhood, some old businesses, one of the high schools in Des Moines. And the first thing I was told to do uh, was to grab my camera. And at the time, I'm 51 now, so this was 2008. I was much younger, much more fit, doing triathlons uh, and marathons. And I said, grab your camera take your car, drive as fast as you can and run down the, the levee because this, this particular levee had a, um, a bike path on top of it. So 
I could, you know, I hit the trailhead. I, I jogged on it as fast as I could. I took the first pictures uh, that were taken uh, of the thing. And I'm not a photographer. I just took them with my camera. They got published in USA Today. Uh, so uh, did that. And then once that was done, sun is rising. The job the rest of the day was just to get every story I could, walk around, talk to people, uh, uh, public officials, whoever I found um, who were scrambling to, to deal with it. Now, again, this flood, the levee bursting, no one, it happened, you know, in the in the middle of a forest, nobody saw it. The water rushes through, but it's not, it's not like there's torrential, you know, waves or anything like that. This water came, came through and did what it did. And so then it was once again, just people figuring out, you know, it's not, it's not a hurricane with crazy winds or anything like that. So, so you're just walking around uh, these neighborhoods and, uh, and I was walking around for hours, no issues at all. And uh, walking around the same places kind of over and over again, because it's the, you're just trying to see, um, you know, every hour that goes by, how it's changing people's lives, how people are reacting to it. And so um, I'm trying to, oh, I, I walk up on this corner that I had been multiple times before. And this is something I think you'll be able to uh, understand and relate to and maybe even explain to me. But at that moment, at, it may, I think it was the top of the hour or something, the, the, the police had clearly all talked to each other over channels. We're meeting at this corner at this time, and it's our makeshift, you know, meeting of the minds to figure out where we go from here. And I walked up on it, and uh, that's obviously what it was. And I stood a respectful distance away, but close enough where I thought I might be able to hear some things. And one of the cop turns and see, and I've got a, I've got a press badge on. I don't know. If at the time he specific, because there were other pe members of the public relatively close as well. I, so I don't know if he thought, decided I was just anybody and was a little too close or if he saw my badge. But this guy turns to me and says, no, you got to get out of here. So I'm fine. You know, there's no reason I need to be in on your uh, conversation right then. And I, and I, and I leave. I, there's other things I can do. And then probably an hour later, something like that. Uh, after doing other things, I come back to that same place again, not to see if they're there, but that was a, there was a uh, sight line and they met at that reason for the water had, um, I don't know, several, several hundred yards away is where the water line had stopped. And they were up on a hill a little bit and it was along a main thoroughfare. So, it, and I came back and I, tons of, tons of people, the public all over the place, uh, they had put a couple pieces of heavy machinery uh, there in the road and left them there just as a, you know, cars don't go through or things like that. But people were all over the place. And I'm about to interview uh, some of those people. And this, the same police officer who had told me to get out of there before, just through sheer happenstance, because he wasn't just sitting there, he, uh, was in a car with another police officer and they're just driving uh, around the corner and driving by and he sees me and he just, he, he unnecessarily steps on the gas. Uh, I mean, this guy just clearly was like, I'm bored. Floods aren't any fun. I'm going to go have myself some fun and comes up uh, right up to me, steps on the brakes hard and gets out and says, I thought I told you to get out of here. And I said, well, you told me to leave from your, your meeting like now 
I'm covering the story. I mean, you know, I'm a, a reporter now. The public is everywhere. I don't have to go anywhere. And he threatened. He said, "You got to get out of here." I said, "I don't. I don't even understand why we're having this conversation here." Uh, look around. This I'm here to cover exactly what's going on. I said, "I'm not any. I'm. I'm not putting anybody in danger. I'm not near the." See, everybody initially thought when I got, especially back at the uh, at the paper, initially they thought that I probably, you know, was where I really wasn't supposed to be. Technically, did put the police in some sort of difficult position. The funny thing is, I wasn't even close to that. If anything, the thing I could have not only maybe gotten in trouble for, but I could have been personally injured from was running down a broken levee to take that picture. <laughs> In the morning. Here, the water was hundreds of yards away. There was no, the people were around, which has ended up working in my favor when it went to trial because we had a bunch of witnesses saying, uh, yeah, uh, he, we saw what happened and we don't understand because he was just around us talking with us. So anyways, that guy, I mean, really, it was nothing more than me saying, I, you, I don't have to leave unless you, you tell all these people leave. And that might not be right either, but at least, you know, you can't, you can't be treating, not only can you not be treating me any differently, if anything, I have a right to stay as much or more than anybody else. This is a story I get to cover. And if the other thing is, you know, now that I'm working for the blaze and the Steve day show, I mean, my, most of my former journalist friends could, can't stand me. Didn't like me much when I was there either, but I'm sitting here arguing for actual principles of journalism. So anyways, this guy, He's just fed up with me. He says, fine, you're under arrest. Just grabs me, cuffs me. Uh, tons of witnesses seeing this happen. Uh, the only only thing I did at any time uh, that uh, in terms of uh, a pejorative, I right when I got cuffed, I used one curse word directed at him. Uh, other than that, but I'm pointing out, as long as the public could see me, I was talking and I was talking, you know, loud enough people can hear me. This is, I'm I'm a reporter. You shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and I did it all the way as they marched me to the police car. And the, the second officer, not the one who initially told me to leave and then is the one who arrested me, but he's the one who put me in the police car. Uh, and be, because they didn't like the fact that I kept reminding them that, this wasn't ultimately going to go well for them. He, uh, uh, the, the other officer that initially arrested me, his name is Patrick Hickey. Uh, the one who put me in the police car was, uh, Joe Leo. Joe Leo put his hands around my throat. I was cuffed and choked me and kept saying, shut the bleep up, shut the bleep up, shut the bleep up. And I felt myself blacking out when he finally, uh, stopped, uh, doing that. And, then as we drove off, I just kept talking to him. And I said, now it was bad enough as it was. And now I've got you for assaulting uh, a reporter. And so then we get to the police station and they had called it in. And interestingly enough, there was like a circle of like a dozen police officers. I mean, like I said, the flood had just happened. There's a neighborhood businesses. And so there's just a bunch of police officers there when, the, when uh, we pulled up at uh, the jail. And they're just like waiting, like to be entertained. And so they're watching me come out and I just talked to all of them. And I, and I pointing figures, I said, this guy just assaulted me. 
which speaks to, you know, what happened with you and what happened with me and what I talk about on the show all the time. And a theme I just like that a lot of this is ultimately simply about intimidation to make you go away. And they call you the names so you won't go say anything at the school board meeting or something like that. It, it's all it's all the same addictions. Know your place. Up, don't say anything. And that's just not how I roll. So I just kept telling them that this is how things were going to go. They, they I clearly ultimately ended up believing me because there I am at the uh, uh, the newspaper a couple of days. And the funny thing, so I get put in jail. Uh, I end up they I end up getting out. I end up going. I just, I just go like I don't know. The modern day journalists need therapy for hours and and have to, you know, honestly, I just went back and wrote my story. And really, it's it's. Uh, I thought the whole thing was uh, pretty amusing and uh, that the uh, police were going to get their comeuppance. And and here I may have been naive enough to think that here like this, just stick to your guns and things are going to go this was going to, my career was going to benefit uh, because of this, because, you know, I stood in the breach. Well, then the police come back with the charges. Uh, and I get uh, interference with official acts, which is like the catch-all of all possible. Ch- if they don't know what to charge you with, they charge you w- with that. So they wanted their, that there at the very least. But then they get me with trespassing when I was surrounded by the public and not trespassing at all. And they and they also charged me with resisting arrest when I was surrounded by the public once again, and they saw me get cuffed and I didn't resist anything. And I walked right to the car and then got assaulted. And then because of the assault, they charged me with um, assaulting a police officer. Just made up. Absolutely made up. It's like you, you assaulted his fist when you put your face yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so my editor couldn't stand me could not stand me. And when she walked, she brought me into the room to ask me what happened. And it was clear. And I just flat out stopped her at one point. I said, you don't believe me, do you? And she says, I don't know. This sounds pretty fantastic. And I said, well, okay. I said, I said, I'm not talking with you anymore until I get a, uh, a lawyer, because for you, if you're going to throw me to the bus, this is ridiculous. Now they knew because they didn't like me and trust me that they actually had to get me a good lawyer because otherwise they'd be hosed too. They didn't want that to. So I ended up getting a fantastic lawyer. He and I are tight friends to this day. And he was skeptical at first. I said, just listen. The first time I met him, I said, you know, my rep- he, he, he's, he wanted to stress, you know, I just so you know, I work for you, but I also work for the paper. And I said, well, just so you know, the paper doesn't really like me, particularly my editor. And he kind of was like, uh-oh. But he got to learn pretty fast because the newspaper ended up publishing the first story about this and they had the perspective of, in the in the newspaper that I work for they had the perspective of the police but they did not have a quote from either myself or my attorney it was and he was just like what in the hell is going on he realized pretty fast that it was a clown show at the Des Moines Register and then over time they wanted to um uh, but let's see, the arrest happened in uh, July, August of 2008. The trial didn't happen until December. Uh, I got offered, uh, uh, oh, uh, that's the other thing. They had a large meeting uh, after the fact that anybody could come to any of the reporters. It was at the Des Moines Register where they also had um, a representative of the police department. 
on you know, how to kind of uh, smooth things over, improve relations in the future. And I was told specifically, I was not allowed to go to this meeting. And then to her great credit, uh, one of my colleagues, who I always had a good relationship with, uh, no one was asking any questions about me and my case specifically. And she just said, find out what, you know, how can you explain this? And the police just said, name, rank, and seal. This was before, this is before the trial happened. The, uh, just said, yeah, it was his, he, he did what he did. He shouldn't, he, he, uh, and he shouldn't have been there. And, and most of my colleagues just, they, they just sat there, didn't say anything, didn't do anything. Um, but I was offered, please. I don't know how many people know what an Alfred plea is, but it's, it's, you take it and you, it's not a official admission of guilt, but you're basically admitting there's enough there and this is kind of a mess. So let's all make it go away and say mistakes were made. That's kind of, that's kind of a layman's version of that. I said, said, no way. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not taking anything. We're going to take this to court and went to court and I was found not guilty of everything. But like I said, a interference with official acts, which again, they couldn't, that simply means that ultimately at the end of the day to find some psych, my reporter, my attorney explained it to me this way. This is journalists are always trying to find, not journalists, excuse me. Juries are trying to find a way to not necessarily throw everybody or anybody under the bus in a happy medium. So I was, was found innocent of assaulting a police officer, of resisting arrest, of trespassing. And he said, this is their psychological way. Well, yeah, I guess you probably did something wrong because the police are nice people and they wouldn't be that bad at this, even though they clearly lied about all of these issues. And so, yeah, there was technically I was guilty about of something that has almost no meaning whatsoever. So I, 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 people ask me all the time, uh, about, uh, this, if I'm speaking and if they know about it, is they, do you mind if I talk about it? I, I have, I'm as proud of this as anything in my pro professional, uh, career. Uh, it's, it's, it was, and sadly I was, I fully believed in the system at the time that if I had, if I just talked to my guns, that the truth would win out. And it did. If this happened to me, or a reporter like me today, I, it, it's much, much tougher to advise them to do what they did. Because what, I mean, look at what you had to deal with. How, what courtrooms today? What 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 judges today after what they did uh, to uh, January Sixers? Uh, how they treat BLM versus moms with their kids playing outside in parks during COVID? I, I had a real sense that real justice could prevail back then that I just don't have anymore. I think this is also a problem that we have with the way that they've tried to expedite and make things more efficient through the plea deal process in, especially at the federal level, but even at the lower levels where there's just a, such a quantity of cases, they're overwhelmed. They can't, there's not enough courts to deal with all the cases. So they just rely on this plea. 
But as a result of that, it's almost like a mission creep sets in in the prosecutor's office and they look for new and novel angles because the assumption from the prosecutor is that anyone who's coming up to the line even of the law, oh, they're just being creative to break the law as opposed to somebody like you or me saying like, well, if they're up to the line, that means what they're doing is perfectly legal and you need to leave them alone. So they, may, they have this assumption that everyone is sort of a bad actor as an opportunity to go after and then they throw more at them than they can handle financially, time commitment, stress, and they wind up pleading guilty to a lesser charge. But because of that, it's never really brought into the courtroom. It's never presented to right. a jury to scrutinize. It doesn't get any media attention like yours did. It doesn't have a judge laugh at them and embarrass them as they should be. And then lastly, you have uh, relationships between prosecutors and defense attorneys who see each other a lot. A lot of them actually work together in the prosecutor's office. Yes. So the defense attorneys say, hey, like, that's my buddy Joe over there, and uh, you're going to lose this case. He, he knows how to present to a jury, so you should just get the best deal possible yeah. where you know, people don't have the, I say, the, the testicular fortitude to put, make them uh, have a decision for their chips on every single hand. I, I think that relational aspect that you're talking about that clearly ended up, you know, it's, it's simply intentionally choking the life out of the Washington, D.C. and the federal level. It's, you know, whatever... However, uh, to what degree it, it has now become a full-on deep state. Early on, you know, just these people who swim in the same water and ultimately, even if they came there with good intentions, they become something, uh, they're just self-propagation, the system, et cetera, et cetera. Because it's beyond that here in, and you've heard me tell the stories about in the Carlisle School District where I still live, I had to rescue my kids from. Uh, for reasons to do with the bullying they got after standing up for Save Girl Sports and my standing up against the porn that was coming up into the school district because of that incestuous relationship. And they, I'm here for the kids as a teacher and the small town police officer. And so in, I, I, I had the cops called on, the, the, a teacher called the cops and the co to complain about me for holding her accountable on social media. And they called me up and I was like, what are you doing? You I mean, honestly, hang up the phone. We have nothing to talk about. There's absolutely nothing on there uh, that you can in any way say I'm uh, har harassing her for. Uh, for. It's the new novel idea. And it's this, this percolating where people think the internet is real life. And they honestly feel like they're being threatened because someone says something that is outside of their regular thought processes. Oh, it's so just... It's not even the, any particular word. I mean, I use the term groomer in in, in terms of that. And by that time, uh, I used, started using that pretty early. I mean, I didn't coin the phrase. And I'm not the reason it went viral. But um, it, it had become pretty ubiquitous by that time. You weren't going to get anybody for calling somebody a groomer. I wasn't making any specific charges that didn't happen. Uh, but she was the Gay Straight Alliance director of that school. She was publicly advocating for this at school board meetings and on social media. I saw her. So it's not any one particular world. Where they just hate accountability. You don't understand the system. This isn't we the people. This is I have power and, and you don't, which is why I went to my kid's own soccer banquet. And they purposely called the cops and had the police at my, now please show up to public school, you know, a large basketball meeting. There's still police that are in, you know, hired in some school districts to be there all the time. But there aren't cops at a, a banquet for your, for a particular sports team. And they're there and they're there just to intimidate me. 
they, they also had cease and desist letters sent to me, the, the same teacher. So this is about a level. I, I just think you brought up such an important point. These people get together, they talk with each other, and they've it, it becomes a, a country club, a clique that they are a part of, and they totally forget that ultimately they're there to serve a fundamental purpose that is about us. The they're, tax our, they're our employee, but they figured out the way to access the choke points of power. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the way that they're able to do that is they make it inconvenient or uncomfortable, which yes. is what most people don't have the don't have the gumption to go and confront. They don't want to be confronted with feeling a little bit icky or, or having to say something that it gives them the heebie-jeebies or even just inconvenience. Like, look, you know, I want to watch a Thursday night football and we purposely put the school board meeting on Thursday night because we know that no dad's going to show up. And I, you know, I showed up at a school board meeting. Um, like you, I, I pulled my kids out of the public school. I have them in a, a private Christian school. Uh, Moms for Liberty reached out and said, we have some pornographic material. Will you come and, and read it with us in front of the school board? I said, yeah. We were outnumbered 15, 20 to 1 by oh, people. Yeah. And none of them had kids in the system. But they figured out that they made it very uncomfortable for yeah. us. And they and they, people, even the members of the school board, uh, they if they drag this meeting out and they make it a six hour proceeding, yes. people are just going to throw their hands up and go away. And uh, I, I love this is something you've you've said before, uh, and I've sort of incorporated into my lexicon. It's being Americans not a leisure pursuit, and I, I I now say that we always hear America is this idea, but actually America is an action verb. You have to do America, and that includes doing the things that are not sexy, that not going on C-SPAN or later on cable news at night after you had your congressional testimony because you're a senator now. Uh, most people are just interacting with their school boards and their town councils and, and doing the things that the day-to-day, -day, fixing the potholes. That What's going to impact your life more? The, are we going to cut $100 billion off of this rider on this appropriations bill, or are you going to fix the light so that we have stop having that traffic signal go out so often in your town? And, and look at where our addiction to comfort and leisure has gotten to us in terms of our baseline assumptions, in terms of actual, if you're really, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's ultimately laziness, sloth at, at a biblical level. Because if you're really interested in kind of safety and prosperity, that we would all hope to have so that all boats rise with the tide. Here's where you think you would really be irritated. If people called teachers who children are with for five, six hours a day, if they start thinking a little uppity and start saying things like, well, parents aren't experts at education. And here's why we are sure that this pornographic material needs to be taught to them. You'd think that in the interest of real comfort, this is where you'd be like, I'm getting off the couch because I want to relax and I want to know that you as a teacher is never going to do this. But the opposite has happened. The opposite has happened. We've been sitting on that couch long that nothing can get us up. We don't want to be bothered. So we default to ridiculous, trite notions of, yeah, yeah teachers... The math teacher is an expert at teaching your kid why your boy why he's really a daughter. And as it applies to the police, conser conservatives have gotten very very lazy about back the blue law defending law enforcement nonsense. Look again, look at how complicit law enforcement has been. The F 
I'm preaching to the choir. If you're here, nobody knows more about how the FBI is, if not a utterly incompetent, a borderline enemy of the state uh, at this moment. But here's the, it's not, if a conservative is really about smaller government, more accountable government, newsflash, everybody, law enforcement is the branch of government with the sticks and the guns. They don't get a pass. You have to hold them accountable as much as everybody else. But again, we've been so lazy in what, what, uh, in how comfortable we want to be. And we have no founding father belief in, in our notions of, of what we have to do a republic, if you can keep it, to do the things so that we can genuinely sit there and and celebrate on J- July 4th with barbecues and all that stuff. We have no sense of duty, citizenry, on what we have to do fundamentally as a baseline citizen to make sure that we aren't basically just told lies and puppeted around while we say, hey, isn't it great to live in a democracy? It's become very, very sad. The the July 4th barbecue isn't a birthright. You actually have to put in the work for it every single day. The, the guys that laid it all on the line for us 250 years ago certainly did, but that wasn't a one-time sacrifice. Their expectation was that everyone was going to bring something to the table, uh, maybe not to, to the extent that they were. They're willing to pledge their life, fortunes, and sacred honor. Uh, but, I mean, you, you can't give up a, a Monday night once a month. To, to go to the school board meeting, that's that's a pretty sad state of affairs. And and I'm glad you sort of zeroed in on the expert aspect to it because it's this get out of jail free, get out of a, any sort of accountability. Well, I'm trusting the experts. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. They know more about this than me. They know more about my children than I know. They know how to educate them, which is just farcical. Uh, but along the lines of the experts, and the other, other thing I want to talk to you about while I've got you is you wrote this best-selling book, uh, it was published in 2021. It's called The Faucian Bargain. And you wrote it, obviously, in 2020, having gone through that that book uh, process. There, there's obviously a, uh, an overlap of time. There's a, a gap in time. Um, so you were writing it, actually, from the perspective right in the thick of things of trust the experts, trust the science. This is pre-vaccine madness. It was just, at that point, the lockdowns and wearing masks and all that. Um, this book uh, is is great. You know, I read it, uh, and I'm, I'm interested and curious to get your perspective of what your your thinking was along the lines of uh, was this honest mistakes versus nefarious intent at the time, and then now that it's three years hence from there, uh, has your perspective changed on that? Uh, well, I believed at the time that was it was far closer to nefarious intent all the way along. And I'm just more and more certain of that. Now you'll have to remember, you know, this, but how many of your, your audience, um, doesn't, I, I am, uh, what many people, uh, call as a pejorative, but fine, whatever. I, I, I'm the original anti-vaxxer on the show, which does not apply to Steve specifically. He thinks much differently about it now, but before 2020, um, my wife, uh, was, uh, and this, so her battle goes back, you know, uh, with her, her siblings and her parents, but she's never been vaccinated for anything. And, uh, I, I was, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but I've been, va- you know, normal vaccination. I, I got all of them in my family, never had any problems, uh, that I know of had not thought about it much at all up until meeting her. Uh, but got a very fast education. And I, it was one of those things where you're like, kaboom, when you when you start reading 
uh, about this. And so I have four children. None of them are vaccinated uh, for anything. And so I, I came to, and part, some of this is just the, the science of it, as we see it, the, bi the biology and the chemistry of it. But the other side of it is the lies, the deceit, uh, the, the, the business model of big pharma, the fact that it just does not care about you. And uh, so I was highly dubious. You know, this is why right out of the gate, if you watch the show in March, of 2020 and i was pretty emotionally raw my father had just died but we had just buried him the week before the the shutdown uh lockdowns uh started happening but it, that's how ha things changed he had a wonderful he was a navy veteran uh buried um with the normal uh honors the hospital experience you know in as much as saying goodbye to your father can people coming and going it was wonderful it was as beautiful as it could possibly be. And then a week to two weeks later, all hell breaks loose. And and he, I think he was in bad health anyways. He's the kind of person that COVID would pick off. We think it's likely the way things, you know, went from bad to worse so quickly. I um, think it's probably COVID, but nobody said that at the time. Even though stuff was going on, you know, China and all that stuff. Uh, it was already, you know, percolating because that started in January, if I'm... Uh, not mistaken. Um, but so my, I, I, I could smell a rat. Oh, wait, I knew what they were going to try to do to you. Once they started turning the screws, I just said, this is, you're not, this isn't going to be, you know, do our best, find uh, th those that we need to protect the most. And we already knew because of Italy, even if China was a lie, we knew because of Italy, the demographics for this, it did not come like a thief in the night for your children or for, or for middle-aged people in good health. It did not, it's less threatening to them than the flu was. And we've been living with the flu for a long time. And we knew that. And it was just begging and pleading. Just settle down. But you could, the psychosis took over. Everybody uh, lost uh, their minds. And just about everything possible that was bad could happen because we, again, as a people, were so addicted to comfort that we were willing to let people do whatever they want to play puppet with us. And those people had increasingly over time had a hunger for taking away our freedoms and treating us uh, like that. I mean, it was just the it was the perfect storm. There's a different level of who was evil from the very get go. The Fauci's of the world who absolutely hand in creating uh, this, uh, virus and, uh, and then manipulating us accordingly, you know, the degree to which China may or may, was it an accident? Did they do this on purpose? You know, we're, we, we, most, most people still, honestly, sadly, most people don't care about knowing they just, they want to move on to the next chapter in their comfortable life. That's the most upsetting thing to me about this. I, you know, I, I hammered on this and uh, reminder, folks, we're on the American Radicals podcast. If you're with us here, we're with Todd Erzin from The Blaze. I uh, have a conversation with him now about his book, The Faucian Bargain, which is a couple years old. But uh, I, I, I think it's a great time capsule. And you guys were really careful about not delving into the conspiracy theories as they were labeled at the time. And now, you know, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and fact? It's probably about six months. Um, and I remember at the time being absolutely irate 
with the way that everything was being handled with all the lockdowns. Uh, was in Iowa. I had the thousand yard stare because we were getting a snowstorm on March 16th, 2020. And I was looking out, deciding when it was time to start shoveling the driveway. And my wife came up to me and said, what's the matter? And I just lost my mind because it just, I could smell a rat from a million miles away. Nothing made any sense to me at all. And as angry and upset as I get at what is going on with the FBI now and how they are weaponized and politicized and going after people, I get far more angry at the handling of coronavirus because my, the scales fell away from my eyes. I thought at the time, even then, I'll admit, uh, I was 180 degrees wrong. I thought there was too much Gadsden flag waving, too many guys that are are just want to go to the gym. There, oh, there's not enough people. There's not enough Netflix that people are just going to stay home. And then I watched all of my countrymen just accept yeah. what they were told, that even though it made no sense, or even if they knew it made no sense, look around the room and say, look, guys, we know the masks don't work, but we're all going to put them on anyway. Yeah. And then when I said, that's really dumb, I was the enemy. And then they gladly lined up and and took the jab, even though before that, the same people who told you you had to wear the mask and you had to lock down, when the BLM, BLM protest started, they said, well, you know, that somehow the amazing feng shui of the BLM protests are organized in such a way that the virus can't quite get you as hard when you do that. It, I mean, it's amazing. And everybody, for the most part, so. It just shows, goes to show we still live between the Atlantic and the Pacific. We still live between Canada and Mexico, but this isn't America anymore. Not in any fundamental sense, not in the way that makes it January, uh, July 4th, uh, a real uh, patriotic holy holiday. It's just a barbecue. That's all it is now. I mean, for for Americans to lay down and die like they did, not that I, I had a hunch that's exactly what we were going to do on some level, but the more each lie grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And the people telling us to sue more and more bold and everybody else. And again, it, it, this doesn't, don't allow yourself any luxuries about, Hey, the left was, yeah, the le people of the left, uh, who, who's entirely and outwardly and proudly been co-opted, um, by, you know, the forces of darkness that are now global, but it's been internalized at least the, total subconscious level by people of the right. The church was utterly cowardly uh, in terms of this in most cases. You know, every everybody, uh, that 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 idol of comfort, oh, it's so shiny right now. And there's very few people who will, you know, take a any any manner of wound to fight back, you know, let alone a bullet. It it's really disappointing when you consider the fact that the 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 heritage of our country was a family of six or eight and the parents looking at each other and saying, we know that a couple of our kids aren't going to make it, but we're still going to yeah. get into this covered wagon and cross over multiple mountain ranges for yeah. a better life. And people couldn't be bothered to uh, think for two seconds about how putting a face diaper on would make any sort of impact. And, and even if they were, were willing to do that, it, it was a chest cold and yeah. they were willing to sacrifice their children's education yeah. and, and their, their lot in life because they didn't want to even put the, the bare minimum level of research in or just yeah. critical thought in yeah. uh, and, and contrast that with uh, you know, what our, what our, our founding people did, you know, crossing the, an ocean in a Mayflower knowing that there was a fair chance that they might fall off the end of the earth yeah. from their perspective.
And wow. every day that goes by, it's obvious that th this isn't this isn't a guess. This isn't conjecture. This isn't a theory that's growing more and more sway. We we had when we wrote this book. That book, as you know, is filled with evidence, and that came out in February, March of 2021. So we had all of this then. We have even more now. A chapter in this book that you know it's all about Sweden. We kept talking about how Sweden is now the lost city of Atlantis. But Sweden still exists. Now, it's when you look at all of the nations and they run these graphs, who's, who fared better? It was Sweden. Now, that place is so nice, but it got the science right. And it proved what we were talking about this whole time. We never had to do anything we did. And I, if you, if you hear anything I've said up until this point, and if, if what I'm about to say still like blows your mind, there's like, oh, I don't know, that seems a little too extreme. You still have more work to do. Had we done absolutely nothing after we heard about COVID, and I mean nothing, no masks, no jabs, no lockdowns, nothing, we would have been in far better shape, For obviously constitutionally and all that, but just health-wise. If you're still thinking that, yeah, they went overboard, but some of these things, no. You were used and used, and now your heart and the and the rest of your body may be a ticking time bomb uh, because of this uh, mRNA jab that uh, was absolutely put in you. To and they admit this, they used you as a human guinea pig and said, "Well, you know, fog of war, stuff like that." We would have all been better off had we done nothing. If you don't understand that yet, you need to do some homework because being that painfully ignorant. When your liberty and your health are just being toyed with by Bond villains is inexcusable and you should be ashamed. I mean, just to the lighter note of it, when I, I got the Delta variant during the surge in Florida, which was probably the, the worst variant that anybody experienced, yeah. uh, and I couldn't breathe, had no appetite. And the only time I could actually get a full breath in was when I just, because I'm I'm crazy about exercise and, and I, I'm going to do it no matter what. It basically got to be, have a leg amputated before I'm going to miss a run. And I went for a run and I got about 400 yards down the road and I started getting tunnel vision because I couldn't breathe. And then I broke through after about 400 yards and I could get a full breath. And I remember thinking and laughing, I said, I have no appetite. Um, I'm making sure that I get lots of sleep because I'm so tired. And the only time I can breathe is when I exercise. I think most of America probably needs this because this could be the solution to the obesity epidemic. Yeah. But instead, we just, I mean, all half my kids' friends came back morbidly obese because they sat on the couch for two years. And and we're going to be paying the price on this. We don't know that the tread on the tires that that these people are, are experiencing. There's no long-term studies on, the, on the, the vaccines. And there's more questions than answers now. Uh, but the one answer that we got was that we were really just soft and uh, unwilling to be uh, to, to demonstrate the fortitude that was necessary that we like to brag about having on July 4th. We're, yeah. we're really... Uh, th that's we don't deserve that holiday anymore. Um, no, no, especially since, and here's the one important caveat to when I said if we had done absolutely nothing. Here's the part that I was still naive about. Even, like I still clearly had room to grow on this front, even as the anti-vaxer. I, I, I was shocked that the evil had grown to such a point that they would withhold ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine uh, from people. 
This affects different people differently. It's used in conjunction with different cocktails, different vitamins, but that you that they would tell people don't come to the hospital until you're deathly sick. And if you do go to the doctor, we're going to arrest that doctor if they use things if they uh, which is a very common um cross um off label off label usage just cuz they work cuz we're trying to help people we use our educated guesses about what might help people in these situations that was the most shocking thing to me they made criminals of doctors and people who used things that had won nobel prizes because this is how it's disgusting this the part, big pharma is ultimately about it's it's if you think pharma is fundamentally about healthcare, I don't. At this point, I don't know what to do to help you. Like, they are, they know that you. They, here's how they think about you. You know, in the the the, the drug addict and the crackhead and all of that that was described in like the TV show The Wire and things like that. As as a user of uh, of all manner of over the counter of drugs and certainly vaccines, pharma views you as a crackhead. They know you're addicted. They know you won't ask any questions. They know you can't wait to get that next hit. I'm 51 years old. I had somewhere between 7 and 14 shots, inoculations, boosters back then. Here we are, 2023. That number's up to 70 for all manner of things. The chicken pox. The, the men, young boys get the HPVs, HPV vaccine, uh, which is uh, something that uh, pertains to girls. It's and they know you're not going to ask any questions. They know you just want the drug because medicine men have become the shamans uh, of this country. And that ba- and I say it on the show all the time. If you took your average Christian and you had to say you have to choose between baptizing your child, vaccinating them, oh, most of them, they drop that baptism in a heartbeat. That white lab coat is now the uh, the new cl- clergy uh, robes. That, that's really what what's yeah. happened here. And it's it's just awful. Um, I, Todd, I can't thank you enough for, for joining me today, uh, on the American radicals podcast. Uh, it's been a great conversation to have. I'm really honored to have you here with me. Um, I know that you've shared a great story here. I know the audience is really going to appreciate that. Uh, thank you for being a voice that, uh, America doesn't want America doesn't deserve, but America definitely needs, uh, you are America's dad. <laughs> and, and and I'm very grateful uh, for for you sharing your time with me today. Uh, and I'd I'd love to go, have you come back on another time um, and, and t- talk about more about this. So uh, so thank you today, and uh, and and thank audience for joining in. Uh, we're gonna close it out here, uh, but uh, be sure to make always join the American Radicals podcast every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday at noon on Rumble, Rumble.com/slash/amradpod. Uh, you can follow me at Real Steve Friend on Twitter. You can follow. My counterpart Garrett at GOB Actual, and you can follow Todd at Dace Online. Uh, thank you all very much, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, we will see you next time. You've been listening to the voice of the Suspendables on the American Radicals podcast. Follow us on Rumble.com/slash AmRadPod.